0: You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, thank you, Morgan. Welcome to the Vine Church. It's good to be gathered with you this morning. It's always encouraging just to sing together, to be reminded of who God is and to really celebrate Uh, his gospel and love for us. And to do that collectively as a community, uh, it's encouraging to my soul. And so, uh, so, so thankful uh, to be here with you this morning. And obviously, as we read there, uh, a challenging text, uh, a very challenging text. And Morgan said it well earlier, of a beautiful and complicated life of David. And we're going to get into it. Uh, If I don't know you, I'm James. I'm on staff here. I would love to meet you after service. I help with a lot of things kids and and youth, and it's a a joy uh, to serve here at the Vine Church and to be in community with you guys. As we get going, um, I heard of a business owner um, who, as he was walking through his office, overheard a conversation, and one of his employees said, you know, if I just had $1,000, I would be a satisfied man. And the business owner stopped in his tracks, and he went to this employee and said, you know, I, I overheard what you said, and, and I heard that you said if you had $1,000 that you would then be truly satisfied, and, and you know what, I've never met a truly satisfied person. So this business owner pulls out his checkbook and writes out a $1,000 check and hands it to this employee and says, I want to give you that $1,000. And as the owner walks away, he hears from the lips of this employee very faintly, if only I'd asked for 2000 my goodness, isn't that an accurate depiction of our human heart, of our thirst, of our craving, or our lust for just a little bit more of life? A number of years back, I spent a year in a discipleship school, and it was a great school, but it served terrible food. And I'm not a picky eater. I'm not. I'm not at all. I'm from Iowa, you know? But several months into that program, the director of this school, he took the students out for what was a celebration meal to a restaurant with a buffet. Again, I'm from Iowa. It's the simple things in life, folks. But after months of eating terrible food, it was like go time for my belly, right? But there's an art or a science to eating at a buffet, right? Amen. Number one, you cannot waste your stomach capacity on like the rolls or bread. That's off limits, alright? Don't go there. Number two, you gotta pace yourself, alright? You're there for hours, alright? You gotta go, you gotta go slow. Pace yourself. Number three, you gotta build a retaining wall around the outside of your plate of ma- with mashed potatoes so that you can stack in the middle of it like this huge tower of the good stuff. The ribs, the chicken wings, you know, all the the good quality meat, just stack it right there in the middle, right? That's how you do it. I'll be honest. At buffets, I have an incredible challenge to like rein in my appetite. I have this little voice that says, One more plate, James. Just one more scoop. Just one more wing. Just one more slice. And on that night, that was to be a celebration at this discipleship school with all my fellow students. You know what? I, was, I spent the night alone, in the bathroom, <laughs> suffering, sick as a dog. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think we all can resonate. That we share this thirst or this craving or this lust for just a little bit more in life. Just a little bit more to my paycheck. Just a little bit more square footage to my house. Just a little more influence in my relationships. Just a little more pleasure, a little more comfort, a little more power. Just a little bit more. But when we allow that desire for more to grip our hearts, it never ends well. Just like me in the bathroom that night. We'll spend money we don't have to buy that car or home. We'll pursue forbidden love of another human who's not our spouse. We'll push our kids beyond uh, uh, their ability without an ounce of compassion. We'll blind our integrity to fast-track our career. Our thirst for just a little bit more never ends in like a goodness, but ultimately our destruction. And, and perhaps maybe you find yourself here today. Perhaps you're not happy or, or satisfied with where you're at in life. And you're asking the question, can I ever be satisfied? If you're not there yet, turn to 2 Samuel 11. There's Bibles in the back. Portions of it will be on the screen. But I encourage you to actually look at this text with us, Second Samuel chapter 11. And earlier in the year, before we paused our study of life of David, we saw David really rise in power from that of like this unknown country shepherd boy to that of a national hero, from that of a a wanted fugitive to that of a warrior king. And now as we come back to chapter 11, he's 20 years into his kingly reign. He's probably around 50 years old. And honestly, like things are going really, really, really well for David. He's distinguished himself as a mighty man of God, a composer of glorious psalms. He's proven himself a supreme general. If you read through the preceding chapters, it's victory after victory after victory. I'm not sure he's endured a single defeat. He's demonstrated himself a man of honor. Upholding multiple oaths sworn to his people. Really, after two decades of what I would say is immaculate leadership, David finds himself, as we come into chapter 11, like securely surrounded by a fortress of money and fame and power and influence. He's got this growing and young family, a beautiful palace as a home, a trusted circle of advisors who are are fighting for him. And as a cherry on a top, like God's covenanted with David saying, your kingdom, guess what? It's going to last forever. Like who doesn't have it? Like what does David not have? He's got everything he could ever want or what we might want. But enough is never enough to the human heart. David, like you and I, possess this thirst, this craving, this lust for just a little bit bit more. In 2 Samuel 11, as we just heard, sadly and horrifically, we see how this desire for just a little bit more leads to severe heartache, pain, and even death. Father God, we pray right now in this moment that your word would jump out of this text and serve as a warning and a hope for us. Open, unlock your word to us in these precious moments we spend together. It's your your name we pray, amen. Well, two truths, I pray, just jump to the top of this narrative are this, and we'll use this as our outline. Number one is that sin is never satisfied. Sin is never satisfied. And secondly, may this jump to the top is that Jesus always satisfies. So sin is never satisfied. Before we really climb into the details of 2 Samuel 11, I just want to get equal footing on how we understand the process of sin. because so I want that to really be kind of the framework for how we actually then read this text together. So I want to go to the book of James and how I think he, he spells it out really clearly and given us four, what I would say, four distinct stages to the process of sin. And I got really fancy. Look at this. Isn't that awesome? Look at that. It's color-coded in case you need some help there. But let's read it here. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And what I want us to see here in this process of sin is, number one, sin always begins with desire. Meaning, meaning we choose sin because we desire it, we want it, we crave it. We can't blame our circumstances, we can't fault our parents, our friends, our genetic makeup, or God. And Jesus says the same thing. He says there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that what, come out of a person. Then he gives this long list of like evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and so on. This is the uncomfortable truth that I want us to square with this morning, is that sin always begins with us. We can go back to that slide now. But the second, the second layer of the process of sin is then deception. You see that in the red. It, our, our desires are lured and enticed. And this is a fishing metaphor. It's a fishing metaphor that illustrates the deception of our desires. I'm not a fisherman, but I, I do know how to catch a fish. Or, I, I, In theory, I know how to catch a fish. You, you bait the hook, you drop the hook, hope it entices the fish, and then you pull it in. Maybe I'm missing something. It's not working for me. But, but what's the truth about fishing? Is that bait in the water, though enticing to the fish, is it the real deal? No, exactly. It's not the real deal. Is there satisfaction for that fish on the other side of getting hooked? No, of course not, right? I'm on the other side of that hook and I'm going to eat you, right? That's the truth about fishing. But that's what happens to us. Our sinful desires tempt us or deceive us into falsehood, into believing something that's not true. So we have desire, we have deception, and then thirdly, there's disobedience. As our desires are, as James says, conceived, meaning when our desires are then put into action, that's where the sin then occurs. I'm not persuaded that there's sin and, and, and desire or deception, but sin actually happens when you put it into action. And then lastly, death, as we see, the result of sin is always death. Sin destroys, sin kills. That is the outcome. Of sin. So we see it there desire, deception, disobedience, and death. And I want you to keep that as a framework for as we work through this narrative, I think this is going to be in full display for us. All right? So 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. We'll stop right here. Because as we've been reading through the life of David, it appears through the pages of the Bible that he walks, David walks with fairly consistent integrity before the Lord, except in his integrity uh, of sexuality and passion for women. David, as we know, has multiple wives, many mistresses, which are all a violation, a direct violation of God's command. In fact, if you think about it, David has already forcibly taken two of his three wives. By force, he's taken Abigail and Michael, meaning it's within perfect reason to deduce that sexual sin has a very strong hold upon David. And let's be clear, sexual desire, is, it's not sinful. It, it's, a, it's a good thing, it's a God thing, but it's a matter of walking out that sexual desire, our sexuality, and God-prescribed integrity and practice. But, but here's David. Rather than joining his boys and going out to battle, we're not told why, he's lounging back at the palace, right? And he comes out on the balcony and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. And knowing David's tendencies or struggles when it revolves around sexual screen, I think all of us are saying, run, David, run, right? But David does not run. Instead, it becomes abundantly evident in the verses that follow that David allows his sexual desires to really be awakened and then to grip his heart and mind. And fueled by his sexual desire for this beautiful woman, David horrifically, in verse 4, acts upon this sinful desire. And he has sex with Bathsheba. And when this moment of sexual desire passes, we're told that David sends Bathsheba home. Perhaps he regretted the evil he did. But for certain, we know that he wanted to keep it quiet. Likely assuming that he'd never have to account for the evil that he committed that night against Bathsheba. But he was wrong. As we come into verse 5, Bathsheba sends word back to David with those words, I'm pregnant. And I think suddenly, the flood of the evil, what he did, like comes back to haunt David. This woman, the the wife of another man, is going to have his baby. And so David thinks, like, what what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm the leader of God's people. I'm seen as holy and righteous. I'm I'm seen as a godly man. What am I going to do? So rather than falling on his face before God and before Bathsheba, confessing his wrong, David chooses a route of deception and hypocrisy. He's freaking out. He's panic-stricken. His plan makes no sense if you dive into the details. David, though, tries to cover up his crime. First, we know that David orders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to come back home from war, thinking others uh, will think that, you know, by him coming home, it will appear as if Bathsheba's pregnancy is a result of Uriah, her husband, coming home. But that plan backfires, as we read, because Uriah refuses to even enter his home, believing that he should not enjoy the the pleasure of home life while his comrades are at war. So David's frustrated. He's got to escalate his plan. He takes it to the next level. He sends Uriah back into battle with a direct order to his general saying, hey, put Uriah at the front line so he'll die. And Uriah, as we know, dies. Are you keeping track of David's sin? we got covetousness, abuse, adultery, lying, deception, hypocrisy, murder. And yet, despite this vast evils being committed by David, it appears, as we get to the end of chapter 11, that his plan to cover it up succeeds. David marries Bathsheba, and they have this son. Life seems to be moving forward unscathed for David, doesn't it? But though David succeeded in keeping what he did quiet before man, God sees. The narrative sneaks in this last line that I think is very important. Verse 27 says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is, if we can remember, but this is David. A man after God's own heart. Remember David, the sweet little shepherd boy, the giant slayer? David who wrote, as I said, those beautiful psalms. David who, who always I, I'm not going to take this into my own hands even though I can. I'm not. I'm going to trust in God's sovereignty. It, this is David who's taken his captain's wife, has slept with her, and then has his captain and the captain's men all murdered to cover it up. David has proven the old adage painfully true, which says sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you more than you can ever pay. See, David didn't wake up one morning saying, I'm going to go out and murder one of my captains. That's not how sin works. It begins with a desire, begins with a desire which deceives our hearts, that leads to disobedience, that results in death. David began with a desire for just a little bit more in his sexual fantasies. And by allowing that sinful desire to grip his heart, unchecked, David begins to make a series of decisions in chasing after what it was that he wanted, leading him into a despicable evil I'm certain he didn't even think himself capable of. And all the while, He chased after that sinful desire. He had to keep in front of him the deceptively, alluring, yet very empty empty promise of what he thought, of satisfaction in his sexual desire. But when David got to the other side, was David satisfied? No. In fact, we know where this sin took him. I read it during our time of confession in Psalm 32. David wrote these words. He said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Rather than securing this satisfaction that David thought, That this would bring into his life, David experienced really physical sickness. His bones wasting away, groaning all day long. And ultimately, spiritual ruin for what he had done. Your hand was heavy upon me. But here's the deal, it did not have to end this way. It did not have to end this way. At every point along the process of sin, from desire to deception to disobedience, God always provides a way out by the power of his spirit. We're fully capable of resisting sin and fleeing from that which is unholy, which is why Paul writes, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. There's always a way out. There's always a way out. When David's in the palace looking upon this beautiful woman, though he desired her, had he just turned his heart around towards God in that moment, confessing that desire as an offense against a holy God, it would have been over. But David doesn't do that. He allows his sexual desire to become allured and enticed. And to follow the fishing metaphor, he follows the bait. But I want you to see this as well. Even before David actually acts upon his desire, we actually see God again give David a way out. In verse 3, David asks this. I want you to see this. David asks, he inquires about the woman, and it's reported back to him, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? God is giving David a way out in this response, saying, hey, David, this is someone else's wife. She's not yours. David, this is someone else's daughter. She's not yours. She's loved far beyond what you think you love her for. In fact, this is, I found, very interesting and compelling. In 2 Samuel 23, we're actually told that both Eliam, the the father of Bathsheba, and Uriah, Bathsheba's husbands, are part of David's mighty men. And if you remember, David's mighty men were David's elite group of fighters who joined David decades ago, back when David was a wanted fugitive. These were men who believed in David when no one else did. They stood shoulder to shoulder, bloodied by war, fighting for David. Their lives on the line. So you would think that when David's told who this woman is, though I have to assume he already knows, that it would snap David out of his sinful desire and allow him to realize, I can't do this thing. That's my buddy's wife. I can't do that. That's my buddy's uh, daughter. I can't do this. (laughs) But there's even more. In fact, Bathsheba's grandfather We're also told in 2 Samuel 23, is David's most trusted advisor at this time. Goodness grief, right? This is my advisor's granddaughter. I cannot do this thing. And yet, David allows his sinful desires to push through every single one of these lights of caution. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I think, just helps so much here. He says, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. The flesh burns and is in flames. In this moment, God becomes quite unreal to us. Satan does not fill us with a hatred of God, but with a forgetfulness of God. It's a good one to write down. The issue for David in this narrative is not that there's this beautiful woman before him. That's not David's issue. The issue for David was that he failed to remember a holy God above him. David's heart, gripped by this sinful desire, became filled by believing deceptive lives rather than believing the eternal truths of God and his word. Deceptive lives, perhaps whispering, you're the king, David. A small indulgence, you deserve it for all the work you've been doing. Hey, David, you've you've actually done this before, and it went okay. God forgave you. What's the big deal? David, you're, you're too hard on yourself. No one can chase perfection. David, how many times have you seen other guys do this very thing and no lightning bolt came down? Deceptive lies. We see David's desire lead to a deception, which tragically leads to an act of disobedience, of David abusing his position and power as king to commit adultery. As we saw in James chapter 1, sin always leads to death. And in this narrative, there is a lot of bloodshed. And what I found interesting is that it should have been David put to death. Old Testament law demanded that those who committed adultery be put to death. But it's not David who dies. It's Uriah. It's Uriah's men. And it's his own son, as we'll see in chapter 12. We have desire to deception to disobedience to death, and I hope you see that framework from james it's on full display and it's it's not it's not pretty it's not It's not enjoyable going through these details it's It's actually like just a, a canal of like raw sewage like this is this is horrific, horrific things that happen here in this text and, and it would be extremely more comfortable just to maybe get to chapter 13, right? But we got to look at this narrative and stare at the face of sin. Because David's sin issue is my sin issue. And it's your sin issue too. Sin is never satisfied. And this narrative reveals just that, that One sin always leads to another sin. You can't commit adultery like David and just, I'm all done sinning. Because after you commit adultery, there's lies and deception to cover your tracks. One sin always leads to another. Sin is never satisfied. And the only way to cut off sin, to stop it, is to expose it is to bring it into the light. This is a hard word to preach. I'm asking this question to my own heart. How am I looking to cover up the sin, my sin from the gaze of others? are we seeking to cover up our sin from the gaze of others? David's cover-up, though it worked before man, was no secret before God. May we allow this blood-soaked cover-up of David to remind each and every one of us that such attempts are ultimately foolish. It's foolish. And some of us here right now, we need to stop playing games with God. We need to stop pretending that God's okay with my my sin-laced secret life. Like, he's okay with it. May this be our warning this morning, that our sin will never be satisfied, and it will destroy you. But there's good news. There's good news we don't have to wallow in our overwhelming stench of sin because there's redemptive hope. And our narrative points us right to it. It's Jesus. Imagine yourself in this text as a citizen of Israel, a peasant in David's kingdom, or or whatever position you see yourself in David's kingdom. But David's your guy, right? David's your guy, He's slayed your giants. He's crushed your enemy. He's brought the ark back into Jerusalem. He's filled your country with blessing. But now this, a sin of no equal, adultery plus murder. So if King David, the man after God's own heart, who's done all that, fails, what hope is there for me, just a peasant? What this narrative clarifies so powerfully is that we have a need for a far greater, far better king than David. We need a king who will not stay at home in his comfy pants, but who will leave the comforts of his palace to fight the battles for us. We need a king who does not abuse or exploit his followers to satisfy his own wicked impulses, but who graciously lays down his life for the good of his people. We need a king more faithful, more loving, more wise, more righteous, a king greater than David. And strangely, this greater king we long for is depicted not by David, but it's actually depicted by Uriah the Hittite. Think about Uriah in this story. He's loyal to his king to the very end. He's a selfless servant, decades in the army. He forsakes a night of comfort to honor his comrades at war. When Uriah is placed at the front lines commanded to charge to his death, he knows what's happening. He does so without hesitation or complaint. And Uriah ultimately dies, not because of his sin. He's innocent. Uriah dies for the sins of another. Who does that remind you of? It's Jesus, right? Loyal to God to the very end, a selfless servant, forsook the comfort of his heavenly home for you and I. And when he was commanded, he marched out to Calvary, carrying his own cross carrying his death sentence without hesitation or complaint. And when Jesus died, he died not for his sins. He was innocent, but he died for the sins of someone else, you and I. There is one crucial difference between Uriah and Jesus. Uriah went to his death unaware David had betrayed him. Jesus went to his death fully aware of our betrayal of him. And yet, he went to the cross for you and I. The better king we seek is Jesus. And this brings us to our final truth that I hope encourages us this morning. That as our better, more loving, more righteous, more faithful, more wise, more just king, Jesus always satisfies. A lot of us, myself included, go about overcoming sin the wrong way. We think that perhaps strengthening our resolve or building out a better self-discipline or eliminating temptations will be how we overcome sin. And, And there might be some helps in there, but ultimately none of those are going to work. Why? Because if we've learned from the book of James, our desire to sin actually comes from within. Therefore, we need something more powerful than ourselves. We need something more powerful than our sinful desires. And what's more powerful? Well, the beauty and love of Jesus Christ. The Puritan Thomas Chalmers explains it very well. He says, our problem is not that our cravings for sin are too strong. It's that our passion for God is so weak. What we need are not diminished attractions to sin. What we need are stronger affections. For God. I think that's spot on. And we can think of an athlete as we try to apply this into our lives. We can think of an athlete, out of their desire to win, they, they push their bodies to the limits. Out of that desire to win, they say no to all sorts of pleasures of life. Which means that any desire an athlete might ha- have for, like, a buffet or a candy bar or, like, sleeping in late, not doing the workout plan, is always subjected to their greater desire of winning that's that's what Chalmers is saying that one only brings certain desires of our heart under control by replacing them with an even stronger desire and our passion for god must become like that with with an affection for god so supreme that it just squashes every lesser desire of our flesh but then the question is how do we develop this supreme affection 1 John, we were there earlier this or a year ago. 1 John chapter 3. I, I love this, and we're going to close right here. 1 John chapter 3. The Apostle John writes this, Behold, behold what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Question from the text, as we look at it, is is what motivates us to purify ourselves? Answer from the text is a greater desire to see Jesus and to become like Jesus. I want us to see this. This is the gospel invitation. It's never been go and become something. It's always been come and behold. Come and behold. Come and behold your king, your loving, faithful, just, wise, generous king. Come and behold him. Of your king who went into our battle alone. And stormed against the gates of hell hell, and prevailed single-handedly to deliver me and you from the power and destruction of our sin. That's our king. The king who came not to take anything from his royal subjects, but the one who came to give us everything. That's our king. Isn't he beautiful? That's our king. And I'm convinced and can testify in my own life, and I know many of you can testify too, that we overcome sin as we're captivated by the beauty of that king. Amen? Jesus, we love you. In a text like this that's so horrific, where it seems darkness is winning, Lord, we praise your name you offer something better. Lord, I pray in this moment right here, some of us are perhaps struggling in sin, perhaps feeling overcome by sin, as if there's no way out. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would strengthen and encourage and bring alongside them hope and conviction that there's a better life for them, a life found with you, Jesus, of living in the light. And that in you brings ultimate freedom and life. I pray for those in this room who are just checking out Christianity. Lord, I pray that this would be a message that allows them to see you, Jesus, as the best king. Not themselves or whatever else they may think. But Lord, would you reveal your beauty through this dark narrative that you are our ultimate hope. I pray for all of us. Lord, that we... we we would be committed that you're worth it. Though what we might see around us seems good, ultimately, Lord, may our desires and affections be upon you, our good and faithful king. Lord, may that be so. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.